The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Good morning. As a young believer, uh, I was significantly impacted uh, by a college campus ministry that had a strong emphasis on evangelism and discipleship. Uh, through this ministry, I was developed as a student leader uh, who strongly desired to make disciples and to develop disciples for the sake of the kingdom of God. Though I was certainly growing in my faith as I further committed myself to evangelism, Bible studies, weekly meetings, conferences, summer trips, two imbalances started to become clear uh, with how I understood discipleship. The first imbalance was that most of my discipleship efforts uh, were divorced from the local church. The second imbalance is that my motivation was self-focused on what discipleship could do for me. So ironically, discipleship, what should be others-focused, turned into a me-centered pursuit of other people in an attempt to find my own value and purpose. And at the time, I didn't understand the significance of the local church's task to steward the Word of God and the gospel, and that it was a primary responsibility of of the... uh, of the church to make and develop disciples. My view and pursuit of discipleship was shallow and self-focused. It was divorced from the primary means through which God matures believers, the church. So today I want to consider the biblical role role of the church in discipleship. So as we consider the passage of Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 this morning, uh, I want to do so through the lens or or the topic of discipleship. Uh, Our lead pastor, uh, Steve Clark, who is currently on vacation for a couple weeks, uh, he's previously preached uh, on this passage back in January of 2006, which is 15 years, so I think I can touch it now. It's safe. Um, So so he preached through that, and though I'll be looking at the same passage, I'm going to be approaching it uh, for its relevance uh, for discipleship in the context of the church But his sermon is available online if you want to go and see what it says in connection to its larger flow in Ephesians. And typically a practice in our church is we do what's called expositional preaching, where we go through the Bible book by book, verse by verse. But here this is a one-off. We're just dropping in and and kind of have a narrow focus here for this morning. Um, So though, though it's narrower, my prayer is that it would still be profitable to us this morning. So uh, this morning, as we look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, I'm going to address three primary questions. The first question is how disciples are made and developed. The second question is why discipleship is important. And then the third question is what is the Christian's role in discipleship? So how disciples are made and developed, why discipleship is important, and what the Christian's role is in discipleship. So before looking at this passage, I do want to make a couple initial comments to help set the stage for the things to follow. Uh, so first of all, a definition of, of a disciple. What do, we, what do we mean when we use the word disciple? Well, in general, a disciple is a follower of Christ. 
And this is most easily depicted by Jesus' relationship with the 12 disciples in, in the uh, four Gospels in the New Testament. Um, so we, we see that these disciples follow Christ. They follow uh, him as he calls them. And uh, as Christians, we are called to follow Jesus in a similar manner. And to put it simply, to be a Christian is to be a disciple. Um, I think some terminology is helpful here. Discipleship in the word or in the idea has a whole wide range of, of different meanings and ways we can understand that. And just a couple definitions. When I say the word discipleship, I'm thinking about our following of Jesus. So just to say that discipleship is one's following Jesus. And then the word discipling is helping others follow Jesus. And so very simple definitions, but sometimes we bunch that all into the word discipleship and it, it gets a little blurry. So my, my hope is that to use this language, uh, we can define what we mean. And, and historically, with this idea of, of discipleship, a lot of times we, there's some baggage that comes with that and a different range of meanings. So sometimes we can think about it in terms of a discipleship program, right? So where you go through content and learning and different experiences in order to be developed for some specific kind of work. Or other times we might think about this idea of discipleship in terms of one-on-one -on -one relationship in which I'm going to live life alongside you and just impart and ooze wisdom on you. And so we, we, have, we have these different poles and spectrum, and I, and I think these things can fall under it. But, but what we're going to look and more narrowly address is discipleship in the church and what the church's role is for maturing us as Christians. So as we look at the passage here in Ephesians, um, just know that this letter is addressed to a church that's filled with many Gentiles. So essentially this is many people that did not grow up Jewish or did not grow up knowing the gospel, but they've come to know Jesus. And Paul is speaking to them about the gospel and clarifying it and trying to assure them of their inclusion in the body of Christ. And so the Ephesians is such a rich book as it lays out the doc sound doctrines of the faith but then also talks about the, the unity that we have in Christ, but also the diversity of, of the different people that make up the church. So let, let's look at the passage, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It says, And he, being Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Is that me? Okay. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that, it, so that it builds itself up in love. So that's the word of the Lord. So the first point, first question, how disciples are made and developed. So disciples are made and developed by the word of God through the gospel of Jesus. So disciples are made and developed by the word of God through the gospel of Jesus. So here in this passage, we see three generations of, of discipleship coming or put forward. We see that Christ has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. 
Um, and then on the next level, we see that, that these, these different giftings, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, they're to equip the saints. So we see three, three generations here, Christ passing down to one, and then the apostles and the prophets and evangelists passing down to the saints. This generational concept of discipleship is also found in 2 Timothy 2, 2, where Paul says, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There, again, they, Paul adds a, a fourth generation. Paul passes to Timothy. Timothy passes to others who can teach. And though they're to pass on to others who can teach. And so we see that this idea is central to the Christian faith that the gospel will be passed down from generation to generation. So on one level, this kind of discipleship is absolutely important for leaders of the church to understand as a central component to the mission of the church. But on another level, it's equally important for the congregation to desire and expect to be discipled and equipped for the work of ministry. So everyone in the church should be concerned about this idea, both from a giving and a receiving perspective. So considering this idea that disciples are made and developed, I'm going to talk about what does it mean to make disciples. Um, we're helped by uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, a common passage that many of us are familiar with. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So making disciples. So the, the church is built by making disciples. So, so here in this passage, uh, Jesus calls his followers, he calls the church to make disciples. So how, how do we make a disciple? What does that look like? And there's three, three things that he puts here. First, he says, disciples are to be made of all nations. So we see in the, in the word, he says, going, therefore, to all nations. Disciples are to be made of all nations, to be made anywhere and everywhere. So the gospel is to be proclaimed where Jesus is not known. Churches are to be planted. planted. Believers are to be gathered for worship. And this is regardless of one's culture, language, ethnicity, skin color. The gospel is for all people. So when we say making disciples, we see that that's beyond just our local context. This is something that goes out to the whole world before us. Secondly, what's it mean to make a disciple? Well, disciples, they're to be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism, first and foremost, is one's identification with the gospel of the triune God in which someone identifies with the life, the death, and the resurrection of, of, of Jesus. And so the, in one sense, this, this baptism is something that happens in our heart as someone is transformed, as the Spirit comes to dwell in them, they identify with Christ. But also in, 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 in uh, the action of a baptism by water uh, is how uh, someone displays that they are a Christian before the church. It's how they say, I am a follower of Christ and I identify with him and I identify with his body, with you. And so this idea of baptism is, is important in the theological meaning, but I think it's also very important in what it represents to us as a community. And so if, if this is something, if you have not been baptized, I encourage you to do that. I think it's an edifying thing both for yourself and for the church around us as we come along and affirm what the gospel is. So the third thing here of how disciples are made, 
They are to be taught and called to observe or obey all that Jesus commanded. So one becomes a disciple when they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. They know the depth of their own sin and evil hearts and fully trust that Christ bore their sins on the cross so that they might be made right before a holy God. They hear the words and the call of Jesus, much like the first disciples, and they leave their old life and walk in the new life of the Spirit, having received a new heart that loves God and desires to obey all his commands. A disciple is transformed, yet an imperfect person who knows the grace of God and yet still strives towards further maturity and unity in Jesus. And so this is the heart of Christ, that he would leave his heavenly home and comfort to come to this earth in order to make disciples. And if we are in Christ, this must be our same heart and desire. To see disciples made is one of the primary missions of the church, to make and develop disciples. So having addressed what a disciple is and how they are made, now I want to look closer at this passage uh, here in Ephesians and see what discipleship is in terms of being further developed into maturity. So we see disciples are made, but also disciples are developed by the Word of God. So here at the beginning in in verse uh, 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. So each of these terms here means something and would require a lengthier study and discussion. Um, But for the sake of time this morning, I want to make it my main priority to assert that the significance of these different people, giftings, offices here of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, their significance is their connection to the word of God and stewardship of the gospel. So each of these giftings is not to be understood as a limited office, but rather as a kind of gifting which could overlap, overlap with additional giftings. For example, Paul was an apostle, but also scripture elsewhere identifies him as a prophet, as an evangelist, as a shepherd teacher. So in some ways, he's exercising in many giftings here. Um, but instead of focusing on who does what and how, I think it's simplest to see that each of these giftings are given by Jesus to ensure that the word of God is faithfully understood and proclaimed to future generations. And this includes both uh, newly made disciples and developing maturing disciples. So in in the end, it's Jesus who calls and makes disciples, uh, but he does so by the faithful proclamation of the word within and through the church. And Jesus is, given to the, uh, Jesus, Jesus is given to the church uniquely gifted members of the body to steward this gospel. So the point of this passage is not to focus on who is gifted, but rather to point to the end goal of why God has given gifts to the church at all. The purpose of these gifts is found in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So I, I believe the main emphasis of this passage is not set apart, to set apart uniquely gifted people, in their work, though that's done in part, but it's to unite all the church in the single pursuit of Christian discipleship, which is maturity and edification of the body of Christ. So so why did God give these different giftings, or why does Jesus give them here? Verse 12, it says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
for building up the body of Christ. So in one sense, discipling is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So this first phrase, to equip the saints. The equipment of the saints is to prepare, train, discipline, or to make ready. So think about it in terms of a soldier getting ready for battle. Paul uses this language later in chapter 6 as he writes about the armor of God. He, sees, he shows us how the Christian is equipped and made ready for battle. And here our equipping is preparation for action so that we can be a faithful and effective in our service. So we're equipped for what? We're equipped for the work of ministry. The work of ministry here, or the, the word ministry, can be translated as service. And this is something Pastor Steve has recently pointed out in recent sermons. The idea of service comes from the Greek word diakonos, which also we get the word deacon. And so when we think ministry, we shouldn't over-spiritualize the word, but understand that it, it means service. <laughs> it means loving service in the context of, of the church and different activities. And so it has a wide range of use in the New Testament, ranging anywhere from the ministry of the word to finance to the distribution of food to missions-related activities. So when it, when it comes to the work of ministry, We've been equipped for the work of ministry. We've been equipped for service. And, and yes, it is work, but work is good by God's design. It's good for those that we extend work towards to, for other people. And it's also good for our own souls that God has made us to work. And so when it comes to our involvement with the church, we see that we are being equipped for the work of ministry. And this is, this is important as we think about our church involvement in, in the Christian life. So who is to be involved in discipleship? Well, all Christians are to be involved in the work of ministry. And to get even more specific, we're to be involved in the discipling of others. It's true that we can and must recognize that God has uniquely gifted and called some for specific word-based ministries uh, in the church, and that's where we see pastors, teachers, elders. The Bible speaks uh, holistically and, and deeply about that and the importance of that. But the overall point here is that we are all to be ministers of the gospel. And we see this in that uh, he's, uh, Jesus says to equip the saints. And we see the saints as, as the disciples, the, the Christians, those that are in the church, those that are holy and set apart. So verse 12 going on, he says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So the sentence doesn't just end with equipped for the work of ministry so that uh, we go on and do whatever we deem to be ministry, right? He gives a refining purpose to it. Equipped for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So ministry here is primarily centered on building and serving the body, which is the church. And discipling isn't first and foremost about our purpose or identity, which I, early on in my life, I got that confused <laughs> and, and had it divorced from the church and the building up of something that is, is collective there. Um, this doesn't mean that we don't need to worry about, any, about anyone outside these walls, but the building up the body includes both the ideas we're currently discussing. Building up the body means making disciples and also developing those that are currently disciples. So everyone is to be involved, and it's not just for the pastors or the resident experts to do this work of ministry. It's for all the saints. So in, in some ways, I, I struggle with our world's 
current uh, prioritization of specialists. And I think in some ways we need to hold on to a generalist mentality. So what, what, what do I mean by specialists? Well, we see this all over the place in, in terms of professions, in terms of the academic world. We see these deep specialties where people get a little niche and they have deep knowledge and qualitative knowledge on something. So on one hand, this is good, because how else would society function you know, if people know how to do um, certain jobs? That, that, that's a good thing. But I think there's a mentality of it that becomes tr troubling when we take on a specialist mentality. And, and that the specialist, specialist mentality becomes a crutch that keeps us from learning and exploring the world around us. Um, and, and maybe this happens within the church. So I could see someone saying, uh, I could never have as deep a faith or helpfully share the gospel as well as Pastor Steve. He's just so knowledgeable and articulate when it comes to the things of God. So while there's some truth in the statement uh, regarding someone who's given their life to studying the word of God and teaching it and knowing it well, um, while there's truth there, this might actually stand as an excuse to not pursue deeper faith and knowledge of God themselves and be useful to the church. The specialist mentality can be troubling because when it comes to the work of ministry, it can be easy for someone to disregard the responsibility that God has placed upon them and again to say, God has given us specialists to do the work of the ministry. That's why we hire staff, right? They're here to do the work of ministry. And here Paul is saying, no, they're here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In some ways, all are involved in the work of ministry in, in different ways. And so... Um, so with this, I think we want to be careful and reject a specialist mentality and see that as Christians, we are all to be generally developed and participating in this work. And in general, the work in ministry may be even better facilitated by the general saint rather than the specialized pastor or staff member. And you can think about this in terms of the church scattered, right? So we're the church gathered right now. We're even in this moment right now, we sit with, with a pastor elder teaching the Bible, opening it up. We gather to do that. And this is a form of work of ministry on my behalf, but the work of ministry for the rest of us actually increases exponentially as we all leave this building and the opportunities go forward there. And that as we go um, scatter into our communities, as we gather in our homes, I, I think this is where significant ministry work is done to promote the gospel and to make disciples. It's where we can identify the financial need so that we can bring it to the collective church to meet it or just meet it ourselves as a Christian. Uh, we can minister by opening our home to our neighbors, believing or non-believing, that you might have opportunity to speak of the things of God and develop others as disciples. Uh, it might be involved, uh, involving ourselves with our kids' schools, their sports or their hobbies, uh, and provide unique access that we otherwise wouldn't have. Or it might even be uh, those who are able to go to work every day and engage with coworkers, customers, clients. All of this is connected to the work and ministry that is unique and significant that all the saints have a way better advantage than the equipped people in the church. Equipped. So as we go on, looking at verse 13, he addresses how long this is to go. It says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So how long do we persist in this work? 
The simple answer to this mouthful of a statement is that we persist until we walk, talk, think, love to the standard and the fullness of Christ as the true and perfect image bearer. This is what God has in mind for us. So as we think about us being conformed and being filled to the standard of Christ, some of us might read that and perhaps we're crushed by it or we're tempted to laugh and say, yeah, right, you know, no, no way, Jose, not me. I couldn't even get myself to sit down and pray, you know, once this year. <laughs> Hopefully not this year, but maybe this week, this month. No way can I resemble the standard in the image of Christ. But here's the thing. If you are a disciple, God's plan for you, both in this life and the next, is to grow his people into mature personhood that is representative of what was intended for image bearers originally in the garden. He wants to see us fully conformed to the image of Christ. Christ is the perfect Adam. And the way he's doing this is in and through and to the standard of Jesus. So granted, full maturity won't be entirely possible in this life. But that's what we're aiming at, and as we aim, aim at it, that's how we build the body of Christ. That's the standard that's set. The body of Christ is a transformed people that actually resembles Christ and is moving in that direction. It's not that we're just better at living than other people. It's that Jesus has radically altered our perspective on life, and we hunger and thirst for him and his, act, and his way of life. And we actually want this. We hunger and thirst to be made like Christ, to operate as we were created to operate. So discipleship, or following Jesus, means that our highest goal in life is to be united to him. To be transformed into his image so that we might love others and build up the body as he does. All for his glory and our joy. So making and developing disciples go hand in hand. Making disciples is empty if they do not continue on to the end. And this is easily seen um, of some who rely too much on altar calls or techniques used to get someone to pray a prayer of salvation, and yet there's, no, there's not much follow-up to connect them with a church community and see them developed. So making disciples can be empty if they're not developed. And on the other side, Developing disciples is empty if they are not first and foremost a disciple to begin with. We'd be trying to help someone grow who does not actually have a regenerate heart to begin with. And they don't have the word of God sprouting within them. And so when we think about the idea of discipleship and making disciples, we see that making and developing have to go hand in hand. And that, that's God's plan, that one would become a Christian and be developed into full maturity as a Christian. So the question for us is, do you see yourself as a minister? Do you take your church involvement seriously that you might be better equipped for this work? I know Pastor Steve has talked a lot about being a gospel minister as of late through First and Second Timothy and now Second Corinthians, but I want to drill down into this and see why discipleship is important and how we're to be involved in discipling as, as ministers. So that, we're going to look at the second point and the second question here. Why 
discipleship is important. And we'll look primarily at verse 14 for this. So why is it important? Verse 14 says, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So to put it somewhat negatively, discipleship is important because without it we are prone to drifting and deception. So discipleship is important because without it we are prone to drifting and deception. In attempting to encourage the Ephesians to persevere in discipling, that is in building up the body of Christ, Paul provides a warning to explain why this is important. And the assumption here is that uh, apart from Christ and apart from the church, we are chi- one would be childlike in their maturity. And they will be tossed to and fro by the waves of our surrounding environment. So anyone that has spent a little bit of time uh, in the ocean knows the power of waves. And they know the push that the waves come and they push and they pull in any direction they desire. So it's one thing to be on the beach and to think you're in control and you can resist you know, a wave or a tide. But it's another thing to be in the middle of the ocean with no ground to stand on, getting carried in whatever direction the surrounding environment determines. So this is what happens for anyone who is not grounded in the word of God and not grounded in the gospel. This is why Paul so frequently asserts and reasserts sound doctrine as foundational and essential to the Christian life. If we are not aware, not growing in maturity into the faith and knowledge of Jesus, we are like a child lost in the sea, getting carried away to our eventual death. So in Paul's mind, this idea of of being discipled and connected to the church, it is a matter of life and death. Either we're connected to the church and sound doctrine and the gospel that's been handed down, or we're drifting, we're getting pulled away and tossed around by the current. And only Christ and his truth is the solid rock that can stabilize us. For some of us, this might be a present reality. And we need to be discipled by the church to know doctrine, to know God, to know the Bible. We might need the church to be held accountable for our living by other believers. So some of us are are perhaps lost and we need to rely and trust in Christ for life and for a foundation and for salvation. But I think for most of us, we need to consider the potential reality of, of drifting. And drifting is what happens when the world's voice becomes louder than, the, uh, than that of God's word, and we are more shaped by the world than by Jesus and his church. A drift, uh, drifting is, is subtle, but it can also be lethal. And a drift can begin with apathy or indifference to the things of God, It can begin with the things of the world that begin to take priority over God and the church. It can begin with unresolved pain or questions that cause us to lose trust in the good and caring nature of God. Or it might even begin as we gradually spend less time with church and other fellow brothers and sisters. Or we spend more time with X, you name it. Drift is real, And it shows us something about our hearts that are prone to wander. 
Um, but I don't think this is entirely the biggest problem we face. There's actually a bigger problem that's found in the second half of this verse here, which goes on to say, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What this means is that not only are we prone to drift, which, which is a heart issue, but we actually have other forces working against us and working against us for our, for our destruction using whatever means possible, influential worldly voices, vices, lies, larger schemes in the world around us to undermine God's order and your maturity. The problem is not that we are too easily deceived and just ignorant. It's actually that we like to be deceived and we like to have our autonomy. And we want to live the life the way we want to live it. And this is what deception caters to. And, there, and there's outside forces trying to draw us away. We have an enemy who knows this, and he uses it against us. So as we think about these things in our lives, uh, this, this idea of, of craftiness quickly, quickly brings forward the notion that there's a crafty serpent, Satan, who's working against us. So as we think about this warning and the importance of discipleship, we need to understand, you know, a couple things. One, we are prone to drift. That's true. And we need to constantly return to Christ who is our rock. But also, too, we have an enemy that's working against us. And that's why our being grounded in Christ and the church is what God intends to hold us, to mature us, and to use us to persevere till the end. So discipleship in the church is important because without it, we are prone to drift and deception. So I pray that we can all search our hearts and lives in order to identify where we are prone to these things. So negatively, that's why discipleship is important. But ultimately, what is the end goal of discipleship? Positively, why is it important? The end goal of discipleship is the growth and maturity of the body of Christ. So the end goal of discipleship is the growth and maturity of the body of Christ. So the emphasis, the body of Christ. Now, this includes the individual, but it is much, much more than that. Discipleship is about the body of Christ, a collective people that God is preserving and saving together. So if you look closely, the idea of discipleship here is not merely an individual pursuit in which one privately reads their Bible, prays, scours commentaries and the latest books so that they can grow in knowledge and practice, so that they, uh, someone attempting to share the gospel on their own as, as life allows. In this kind of mindset, the church, uh, someone can use the church to be a helpful or supplementary tool for their individual growth. But that's not actually the primary means of growth. This is not an individual thing that we pursue on our own. Growth is pursued in the context of Christ's living body, in the context of the church, in the context of his people. The saints are to build up the body of Christ until, notice the language here, until we all attain so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. We are to grow up into him in every way. So the language all throughout this passage includes those doing the equipping and it's a community effort. 
This is about the entire body of Christ, not just individuals alone. So in some ways, the church doesn't need better evangelism and discipleship programs in order to build up the body of Christ. I think really what the church needs is to build a culture of evangelism and discipleship in which we regularly and joyfully spend time together, we study together, we pray together, we be hospitable together, we recreate together, we cry together, laugh together, eat together. And while doing all these things, we remember that our primary goal is maturity and unity in Christ. And we seek to grow in maturity as we make disciples and develop them. So real and lasting maturity comes in the context of a healthy church in which the saints are building up the body of Christ. And the saints are building up, not just the paid staff. And if this is missing, we are prone to drift, to drifting and deception and immaturity. And isn't it interesting that God has made it so that the work of ministry and the building up the body is, is accomplished by all the saints in the church? The church is ultimately dependent on one man alone, who's Jesus, but also is dependent on the involvement of all the saints. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, but it's, it's incredible that he is pleased to work in and through the church through lame and weak people like me and you. So as we consider this, you remember that our maturity comes in the context of a people. So the end goal of discipleship is the growth and maturity of the body of Christ. Okay, so the, the last question, what is the Christian's role in discipleship? So the Christian's role in discipling is to sacrifice self and love to pursue the greater good of the body. The Christian's role in discipling is to sacrifice self and love to pursue the greater good of the body. Verse uh, 15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. In, in this section, we see that there's the metaphor of the body that's used here. Christ is the head. We, which includes the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers, we are the body of Christ. So we see the unity in the body, and the head and the body are one, but we also see diversity in the body. And Christ plays the most significant role as the head. So Paul has used this imagery elsewhere in other of his letters, um, but I, I think it's helpful for us to look and think about here. So the Christian's role in discipling. So verse, in verse 15 where he says, rather speaking uh, the truth in love, so how, how do we do this? How do we disciple and grow one another? So a slightly more wooden translation of speaking the truth in love is simply this, truthing in love. So speaking is implied there and that to truth, some, often we have to speak, but it's also more than that. And that we are, as, as disciples, we are to truth and love. We are to, and by truthing in love, we grow up into him. Truth is paired with love, and if we, are with, if we are without either, we are imbalanced. It's easier for people to receive truth when they know that we love them. And many of us are going to be operating on different ends of the spectrum here. Um, 
Some speak the truth without love too easily. Other of us try to love uh, without truthfully addressing hard things. Which one are you? Personally, I dislike conflict and, uh, and, and personally lean towards the side of, I, I just want to love and I, I want to avoid the truth. But this is something that God has graciously made known and revealed because maturity means for me stepping into the truth and speaking that more boldly and freely as I seek to love somebody. But, but for others, it, it, if you're only about the truth and don't actually carry regard for the person in front of you, we need to pursue balance on the other side of growing a heart of love for the people that we're ministering to. And so in this, truthing and love is how we grow up in every way into Christ. And at the end of the day, you can't truth and love by yourself. This takes a community around us who also desires to grow up to full maturity. And my fear is that on the other side of this pandemic is that many Christians are going to be significantly set back in their maturity and growth because we've not been able to live alongside one another to truth and love. On the flip side, my hope is that many will be matured through this and given a greater longing to be with the body of Christ. God is in control, so we can have peace with that, but it's worth a quick inspection. Do you truly see your growth and maturity as being found in connection to the body? So ask yourself that. Do you see maturity as being found in the church and the body, or do you see it as being found in your own individual work and efforts? Verse 16, moving on, says, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly and makes, uh, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Christ is the one who joins and holds together the whole body by every supplied joint. So he joins and he holds together. I think about a woodworker or carpenter who crafts uh, two pieces together. And so I say he's building something and he fits them, cuts them and fits them so that they line up perfectly. And then in that, he joins them together. He puts in, applies nails or screws, puts wood glue, and that these two pieces are made to join and fit and to be united together. And this is what Christ does with the church. Christ is the great carpenter who does this work to join many different parts together in one body. And the idea of joint here can be understood as a, as a connection. A joint in the body is where many different parts come together um, and essentially function as one in unity and purpose. So if you take like a knee, for example, you have bones and ligaments, muscles and tendons that all come together to form a knee, a knee joint and one, and one unit for one purpose and function. Now, the point here is not to get lost in the anatomy and, and the analogy that he's trying to do there, but rather to see how Christ perfectly joins each member and part of the body to the benefit of the whole. So then Paul goes on to talk about, uh, about, about this. He says, when each part is working properly, the body builds itself in love. So this idea of properly is also according to measure. And this is the same word or idea that we find earlier in, in uh, 4.7, where he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
So grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of, of Christ's gift. So according to the measure, so what, what is proper function according to its measure? Well, I think proper function here, when each part is working properly, it's a combination of both maturity and also gifting. So in us as, as Christians, Christ is maturing us. He's growing us. But then at the same time, too, he's uniquely gifted each one of us in personality, in our desires, in our abilities. And then on top of that, there's different spiritual gifts that as we walk with Christ that Christ brings out and grows in us. And so the, the love of God is that an individual seeks the good of those they are in, in relationship with. So we see this Jesus seeks the good of the body. In chapter 5, we see how husbands seek the good of their wives. Christians are also to seek the good of the body. And why? Our lives aren't about ourselves. This life isn't about me. Our lives are about Jesus and the church. If Jesus is willing to give himself to and die for the building of the church, shouldn't we also uh, take on that same mentality? So all through Ephesians, Paul builds and he beats the drum of the importance of the church. Some of the things he says that Jesus seeks to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Jesus is uniting all things in him, and this includes us in the church. Later it says, all things have been put under Jesus' feet and given to him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Later again it says, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And again later, God uses Paul to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of, of Christ to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul is very church-centric in that God, Jesus is using the body to, to glorify his name and using the church to that end. So the last principle I want to tease out here is phrasing this question of, of how does unity and diversity in the church, or how does unity and diversity help grow the church? So the idea here is discipleship is dependent upon unity and diversity in order to bring growth and maturity. So for the sake of unity, uh, unity, we are all part of the same body. Earlier he says we are one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We see this unity that comes in Christ in the church. And unity is closely linked to our correct understanding of the word and the gospel and of, what, of what's true. But we also see this idea of diversity. But grace, what I read earlier, but grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. God has given apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers um, all, all for these different work and different works in the church, and so it's helpful for me to think about these overlapping relationships of unity and diversity in terms of of a football team. So when you think about a football team, you have a head coach, and then you have his staff under him who determines the philosophy of the team. They determine the team culture, how they're going to play the game, who plays what positions. And the intention of the coach is to bring unity to the team for one singular purpose. 
But also on the team, we see diversity in that all football teams have an offense, they have a defense, they have what's also called special teams. Each unit then has its own subspecialties with its own set of coaches. On the offense, you have a quarterback, you have offensive linemen, you have a running back, wide receivers, a tight end. On defense, you have linebackers, defensive linemen, cornerbacks, safeties. And in this, there's tremendous diversity when it comes to the size of players, their strength, their skill, and the things that they bring to the team. So when it comes to a successful football team, I think there's three important criteria that are essential. Always you see a good and quality head coach. Second, you see buy-in and dedication from the team. But then also, as this passage is highlighting earlier, you see you, there's often a, a good quarterback. And, and a good quarterback, that can be debated because there's certainly exceptions to this principle. But generally, the rule of thumb is that when you have a gifted quarterback who is able to lead, things will usually go pretty well with the team, assuming the other two items above are, are, are true, that you have a good head coach and the team is bought in. Well, in this analogy, I think Jesus is giving the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and shepherd teachers, it's representative of that kind of position. And that these, these guys, they're members of the team, and they're equal on that ground, but they are also extremely influential and integral to the success of the team. They are stewards of, of God's living and active word. A humble handler of the word of God knows that it's not actually about him, but rather is it, it is about the body of Christ. This motivates them to work all that much harder to see others in the body equipped and built up to serve in their different roles. So just like the quarterback gets the plays from the coach, these handlers of the word receive the word from God and faithfully pass it on to the team. So in the end, uh, the, the quarterback doesn't own the ball, but he distributes it for the sake of the team. The mission of the church is to develop disciples, to be stewards of the gospel to the glory of God. So the emphasis lands on the team, faithfully stewarding the word of God and playing our different roles, seeking to build one another for build one another up for the edification of the church. So in this model, we see unity and diversity and that God has different roles and equipped different people. But the emphasis is that we're all equipped for the work of ministry and we all have our part to play. And if one of us withholds ourselves from the team, we're actually hurting the team and the building of the body. So Jesus, he's our best example. He came full of grace and truth. He's the one that perfectly truthed in love. He sacrificed himself for the maturity and good of others through his own death and sacrifice. He was strategic um, in how he discipled. He, he had 12 disciples that he set apart, and then even among them, there were three that he was more intentional with for the sake of passing this on. And so for, in our lives, too, we should look to his, his example as we seek um, to be uh, equipped saints doing the work of ministry. So how does growth occur, and, and why is discipling relevant to this? Well, growth occurs as Christians seek to sacrifice self and love to pursue the greater good of the body. Discipleship is when we sacrifice all to follow Christ. Discipling is when we sacrifice all to build up the body of Christ. All Christians are called to make followers of Christ and help develop followers of Christ. In the end, it is Christ's church, and he will build it. 
in his perfect timing and way. But he's pleased to work in and through his disciples. We should seek to be better disciples and disciplers in building the body. So as we think about this in our own lives, if you're routinely, if you're not routinely and deeply involved in the life and functions of the church, it's likely that your Christian growth is being stunted and that you are more influenced by other thought processes of the world. Alongside that, have you ever thought that your own lack of connection to the church might also be stunting the growth and maturity of other believers in the church as well? If you're a Christian, your lack of involvement is not just about you. It actually has implications on others and that your giftings might come and build and edify others in a way that someone else can't. So as we conclude, we've looked at the question of how disciples are made and developed, and we see that they're made and developed by the Word of God through the Gospel of Jesus. We've looked at why discipleship is important, and it's important because without it, we are prone to drifting and deception. And lastly, we looked at the question, what's the Christian's role in discipling? Well, the Christian's role in discipling is to sacrifice the self and love to pursue the greater good of the body. So my hope and prayer is that as we enter 2020, that we as Christians see our need to be better engaged with the local church, both for our own discipleship and maturity in Christ, but also for the discipling and building up of others. So may our love for Jesus and the things he loves increase more and more. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.